My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence. My goal is to explore the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. In addition to leadership, I like to discuss mental health, PTSD, and overcoming adversity. If you have a favorite episode, I would love to hear about it. Message me through social media or my website, and I will share some free tools to help you achieve your goals. Please like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you haven't purchased your copy of my book, Fireproof, please grab a copy today. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Seth Silver and Dr. Timothy Fisher. Uh, Dr. Silver is the principal of Silver Consulting Incorporated and has worked with hundreds of diverse clients on leadership, cultural change, employee engagement, and workplace success. Dr. Silver was also an associate professor of human resource development at St. John Fisher College and the Rochester Institute of Technology. Dr. Franz is an organizational psychologist, professor of psychology, and chair at St. John Fisher College. In addition to his academic role, he also works as an organizational consultant through his firm, Franz Consulting. Their new book is Meaningful Partnership at Work, How the Workplace Covenant Ensures Mutual Accountability and Success Between Leaders and Teams. So, gentlemen, thank you so much for agreeing to have this conversation with me today and uh, and really talking about what you both are, are so passionate about. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much for having us. We're delighted to be here. It's going to be fun. Thanks, Dave. Looking forward to it. Sir, so... Um, well, I always like to get a sense of where people come from, their their roots, their background. So uh, let me start off with you, Dr. Franz. Uh, where were you born and raised, and and what were some of your early influences? Well, that's an interesting question because people ask me this, and I I, I always have to um, take apart born and raised because I actually was born in Steel City, uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but only lived there for first couple of months of my life. And so I was raised in the Rochester area. And I, I'm one of those people who, you know, the politicians around here love people like me because I moved away um, after college, uh, lived in Buffalo, lived in New York City, lived in New York Metro, lived in Chicago, lived in Indiana. And I said to my mom at one point many years ago, I will never move back to the Rochester area. And here I am 23 years back in the Rochester area. Um, and so thinking about teamwork, what really influenced me starting in undergrad was this idea of making positive change at work. Uh, I, I was actually a chemistry major for my first two years and interned in a chemistry lab and realized how much I hated chemistry. Sorry to all you chemists out there. Uh, and then I took a course in my master's program with a leadership and teamwork specialist, and that just got me moving right down this path on how do I make positive change in leaders and teams. So, and what did your what did your parents do for a living? I'm sure they had influence on you as well. Oh, a hundred percent. My mother was that. My mother was the one who first introduced me to psychology. She was a, a therapist, a social worker, therapist, counselor, and I, I realized my uh, uh, version of therapy was not one that would work. You know, that's what's your problem? Just stop it. <laughs> and I know that doesn't work, and I know it's silly, but um, it, it is not 
I am not a therapist and my family will tell you that. Uh, my dad was what brought us to the Rochester area. He was a Xerox transplant back in the day when Xerox was booming and growing like mad. And so uh, my parents really thinking about partnership, you know, I had a great partnership with my parents growing up and still with my dad today who uh, lives in the area and I see and talk to pretty regularly. So. Awesome. All right. Well, um, Dr. Silver, uh, where what's, were you born and raised? What's my story? Well, uh, similar and different than Tim. So I was born in Buffalo because my dad was doing his PhD there, but my parents uh, were our Canadian. Um, and so me at the age of two, um, dad had finished the program. We moved back to Toronto where I was raised and uh, went to the University of Toronto. Uh, just backing up a bit, mom was a teacher did stuff in a faith-based kind of thing and also some school teaching. And my dad was a psychologist who went on to do consulting probably when I was around 12 or 13 years of age. So I knew him for, you know, most of my life um, as an independent, self-employed, uh, independent consultant. And, and I, you know, from time to time when I was 15, 18, 20 something years old would sit in on a couple of his sessions that were for the public. So I already had a role model, probably from the time of age 15 or 16, I, I had a vocational professional role model. I knew I was going to do something like that. So I got my undergrad in psychology from University of Toronto. Um, I worked a little bit on my own sort of office supply business. It wasn't really going anywhere. Um, and I didn't really want to do that for the rest of my life. So I looked at grad school programs, found Cornell, got in by the skin of my teeth because um, I did really badly in undergrad, but it's a tough <laughs> school. Uh, Tim and I have had this conversation. <laughs> so it's hard to get into grad school with marks like 2.5 GPA. But anyway, somehow I got into Cornell with a 2.5 and uh, did the industrial labor relations degree there. And and uh, here's the Xerox connection. Uh, Xerox hired me uh, when I was 26, I guess. And I moved to Rochester thinking, well, I'll only be here for a few years. And then for sure, I'll go back to Toronto or New York City or somewhere else more exciting. And, you know, of course, you meet someone and you... Uh, have a social life and you end up putting down roots. So I stayed with Xerox for eight years. Uh, I met uh, my now wife. Um, I started and finished a doctoral program. So I got my EDD from the George Washington University. And after eight mostly fun, mostly uh, learning filled and enjoyable years at Xerox, I did find I was beginning to repeat. It was kind of groundhog day for me. And I took a voluntary. They were, they were offering severances, and I thought that was the right time to go. And I was in my early 30s, and I was all but dissertation. I had done my coursework and uh, had even started the research for my doctoral dissertation um, and became an independent consultant, which is what, you know, from the age of 15 on, I saw my dad do. A uh, bit of a gamble. Um, in hindsight, I had a new marriage, a new son. Uh, no guaranteed clients, uh, insignificant retirement or personal savings. And that's when I quit my job <laughs> and decided to go solo um, and make my way in the world. So uh, I did that. And I really haven't looked backwards uh, since that was that was 98, 99. And, you know, here I am in 2022 after uh, many hundreds of companies and doing all kinds of different things. Tim and I intersected around 20, 2001, 2002, something like that at St. John Fisher. We were both instructors in the same program. He became my boss. Uh, we became friends. Um, and then the bromance started and we started publishing articles together and doing consulting gigs together. And when COVID came along and I found that I had this open calendar for the next nine months of my life, uh, we decided to collaborate. 
and that's when we wrote this. And and Seth, just to add on, not the bromance, the <laughs> meaningful partnership. partnership. There we go. There we go. <laughs> we are both happily married with kids. He's got three, I've got two. We're, yeah. But um, but we like to bust each other's tops. So, and, and you guys collaborated on this book, and I mean, was this something that you had? had brewing prior to COVID and this and COVID was just kind of like the catalyst, like, yeah, let's, let's get it done now. Yeah. I, you know, I'll take that question and start with that. Cause I I'm going to give credit and Seth always is modest about this and says it's a joint project, but this is Seth's baby, this idea. And certainly I've been involved in developing it and improving it. And I, I'm, I don't want to take away my role, but this really is Seth's baby. Uh, he started out years ago with um, teams at Xerox doing some work around developing meaningful partnership, which we didn't use that term until about three or four years ago. Uh, but this idea was that he would interview leaders and they would um, say, oh, yeah, my team is pretty good. You know, they, they're getting their work done, they're task oriented, but I wish they would not complain about the meetings. I wish they would tell me when they're going to be late. I wish, I wish, I wish. And then he'd interview the team members and they'd say, yeah, our boss is pretty good, you know, keeps us focused, talks to us. But I wish our boss would stop having those 7.30 a.m. meetings. I wish our boss would give us more developmental stretch opportunities. I wish, I wish, I wish. And so he noticed this two-way street of frustration that we talk about in the book. Um, and then the collaboration, he mentioned this to me, I don't know, Seth, probably back in 2005. And I, I always make fun of zealots. I admit that. I make fun of zealots about so many ways, but I have become a meaningful partnership zealot. Um, this is such a great process for getting people to think about really this focus on how do we all support one another so we all can be successful. And I know I'm sure we'll be talking more about that, but it, it is a great process. And I immediately, as an organizational psychologist, saw the psychological underpinnings for why this should work. Not just that it does work, but why. And that's really what we've spent a lot of time developing in research and writing um, about not just that it works. We have the evidence to show that, but now we actually understand why it works too. So let me build on, on Tim's story if I can. So yeah, I mean, years and years ago, I was doing a kind of a team building exercise where manager and team shared expectations to try and, you know, make the implicit more explicit and lessen this two-way street of frustration. And Tim and I started to, after I left Xerox, we collaborated and we enhanced the process. We added steps, we formalized it, we got things documented, we, we built in follow-up processes. And you know, th this idea of writing the book had been in my mind for for years. I mean, I literally had a back of a napkin kind of thing from from an old professor who said, well, if I were you, I would do it this, this, this way. And I kept those notes and I kept a file and there was just never the chunk of time to do it. COVID was really a gift in that sense, um, you know, quickly realized in 2020 that we were going to have this time. So it became my job. And, uh, you know, Tim and I started to collab. By the end of 2020, we had the book and we had publishers by early 21. 
it is transformative. I, I know I'm going to sort of sell the process, but you know, the last few weeks I have been doing these workplace covenants. Tim and I have done a bunch of them together as well. And the reaction of teams, I mean, just let me just tell you a story from this morning. Okay. This morning I was in a town about 80 miles away called Corning. I won't say the company, but the CEO and his senior team. And I met with them in July. We created the workplace covenants then. And it was clear that this is a well-intended manager. He's got a certain downstate abrasive style, a certain tri-state New York City, if you can figure out the stereotypes around that. You know, he's, he's a bit blunt and he kind of does things his own way, a little bullheaded. Uh, team is really smart, wants to help. They're tight, but they had feedback for him. And I, I heard it back in July. Anyway, we created the covenants. We created these workplace covenants, what we owe each other, what the team owed Ed and what Ed owed the team. Fine. Fast forward, you know, three months now, it's time for the first review. And that was this morning. And so the team rated itself on their nine items of what we owe our boss to help our boss feel supported and be successful. And they also rated the manager, Ed, the CEO, and he rated himself and he rated the team. And what happened today was this incredible exchange where you have the CEO saying, okay, I promise these nine things and here's how I think I've done. I've done okay here, here, and here, but I know I've slipped up. I know I've slipped up and here's what I'm going to do to improve it. And here's how I think you guys have done. And they in turn said, here's how we think we've done on our eight items. You know, we're okay here, here, and here, but we could be better here and here. And oh, by the way, boss, here's our assessment of you. And what was amazing was they were able to get at the feedback. They had some real feedback for him. He doesn't always loop them in. He kind of makes decisions sometimes without telling them. Uh, he loves them and respects them, but he doesn't always empower them, et cetera, et cetera. And what they were able to do with the process and the opportunity was to say, hey, it's it's not that we're blaming, we're not judging, we're not putting a, a, you know, a blame finger in your chest, but we're saying in order to be more meaningful partners, in order to help us feel more supported, Ed, would you please, would you please stop doing this? Would you please start doing this? And he heard it and he responded. And uh, the team admitted they're far you know, better than they were in July. And I hope in three months when I come back again, they're gonna be further ahead than they were today. But it's, it's, it's a structured way to help a team gel and communicate and reach agreements on how they are going to support each other and help each other be effective. Now, the and, environment that these teams work in and thrive in, uh, is it consistent no matter the occupation or is this more corporate America? Or, I mean, are you going to find these these tools useful in say public safety or the military or I, 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 I know the answer already, but I, I want to. So I, I don't think it's industry specific because you're talking about military first responders, things like that. And I will tell you um, I, a little more stuff about me personally. I'm an avid volunteer for National Ski Patrol, um, summer and winter. Um, and I, I'm a first responder. And I'm working with a former patrol director uh, to try to build these concepts into their whole patrol at their um, mountain. And so it's it's an interesting conversation. It is not limited to simply just one industry. Now, it works most of the time, 90, 90, I would say high 90% of the time. Um, but it, the reason it doesn't work has less to do with industry and more to do with um, 
how would I say it? Leader and team maturity. You have to be brave enough and willing enough to take feedback. And as a manager or leader, if you're not willing to take feedback, then you really shouldn't be the one giving it. And so uh, you need to be brave enough to be willing to improve yourself. You need to be open to trying to get better. And there are a small percentage of team members. And I, I, I've, I've had it happen in Covenant. Seth's had it happen. It's rare. Um, once for me, only once. And Seth, I'm going to talk about one of your experiences where a team member refused to finish it. But then that team member was let go two months later because yeah, she, she buried herself. <laughs> it was just, this was just another piece of evidence about why that person was problematic and narcissistic and had so many other issues, distrustful. And um, so it's not a matter of industry. It's about maturity. I would say Um, you have to be ready to, yeah, you have, it's going to make you better. It's going to make you healthy, but you have to be willing to get better and be healthy. We've done it with union groups. We've done it with healthcare. We've done it with government. We've done it with higher ed. Um, We've done it a lot with high tech. We've done it between college professors and classes. We've done it between teams that have to work together. In a matrix, high-tech environment. In a matrix type, high-tech manufacturing environment. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, Finance. I've done, I've worked with banks and financial institutions. um, I've never done finance. Yeah. Nonprofit. Guess what? They're people. They are people. Turns out finance geeks are actually people. I've done it with (laughs) IT people. Uh, and I've done a lot with HR teams. Yeah. And and it really, just to echo Tim's point, it is not about the industry. Because if you start asking people questions, I mean, one of the more um, unlikely groups was was a group I actually worked with last week uh, up in Canada in Oshawa, which is a 30 mile to the east bedroom community of Toronto. And the group were facilities. They, they are the facilities department of a large government group. So think about the people who change the light bulbs, manage the boilers and heaters, uh, ensure the locks on the doors are working, the security cameras. Okay, and they are the group that works three shifts, you know, seven to uh, three, three to 11, and then 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. And a lot of these folks are high school educated only. Um, And guess what? They enjoyed talking about their work. They enjoyed talking about the relationship with their boss. They took the process seriously. They came up with wonderful obligations to their manager and very reasonable, appropriate professional expectations of their manager. it made no difference that they wore a blue shirt and, you know, have grade 12 education only. Um, it, it sounds a lot like uh, methods that are used in military and public safety, high performing teams, mm-hmm. because you have to foster that, that team and leader relationship, because a lot of times the team is operating independently from the leader and, if you want them to perform at a very high level, there have they have to be empowered by the leader, and there has to be a lot of trust going back and forth. And it, it seems like that's what you're kind of laying out there, and really um, reinforcing high emotional intelligence. Tim, this is I'm going to let you run with our tap on this one. He he just teed it up. <laughs> that's this is the. <laughs> Uh, really, this is the psychological underpinning. And absolutely, it, it's empowering, it's developmental, it's focused on improvement, it's focused on team success. Um, it's not a trust fall. It's not about, oh, let's feel better together, though people do feel more supported and are more successful. Um, but 
it gets to the uh, to me and Seth the psychological underpinnings that I talked about earlier. That we use the phrase ERTAP: empathy, respect, trust, and alignment, which then leads to this partnership and builds eventually to a meaningful partnership. So empathy is this profound appreciation for the perspective of others, understanding their challenges, how they feel and what's important to them. And respect, well, in a work context, is when we see the people with whom we work as legitimate partners and deserving of rights that we would expect of ourselves. Um, trust in the workplace is this high confidence in other people that they will do what they say and more importantly, that we won't speak ill of them and they won't speak ill of us. And then finally, the, the fourth letter alignment, we've been talking about partnership the whole time. So, uh, but that fourth uh, letter A for alignment, this is being on the tracks, looking down the tracks together, rowing, an analogy we use in the, in the book a lot, rowing a canoe together, um, uh, singing from the same songbook. There's so many sayings about this idea, but it's when the manager and the members of the team are on the same page, moving forward together, cohesive, coordinator, co coordinated, uh, collaborative, and having this common goal towards doing something together to make the organization better and make the work better, support each other so that the team can be successful. No. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. One, one thing that both of you have repeatedly said, uh, you know, two different terms, but pretty much the same thing, commitment, covenant. Uh, and I'm imagining in the process that you uh, work with these teams through, you're formulating covenants or commitments that are you know, within the team, team to the leader, leader to the team. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and why that is so important? Can I jump back a little bit? You you alluded to, you know, when we wrote the book and, and the question you didn't specifically ask that I'd like to address because it's, it's on the table. It's the elephant in the room is why we wrote the book. And it has to do with suffering, uh, pain in the workplace. And Tim and I call it the dreaded four Ds. And we saw it before COVID, and I think it intensified after COVID. And the dreaded four Ds, respectively, are dissatisfaction, when people aren't supported, they're not treated well by boss or peers or others that are important to them, key relationships, they feel dissatisfied. And if they're dissatisfied long enough, and that's not addressed or fixed, they become disengaged, or what we now call quietly quitting. They're still there, but they're tuned out. Um, and if that goes on long enough and they continue to be not supported and mistreated, then they start to despair. That's the third D where they start to feel like, oh, my God, I'm wasting my life. You know, here I am. My boss will never change. My teammates will never change. This workplace will never, the culture will never, I need to get the effing out of here. And then despair leads to departure. So dissatisfaction, disengagement, despair, departure. And we noticed that before. We noticed that teams go through it. We noticed that managers go through it. Uh, there's a lot of it out there. I think that, you know, people feeling wonderful and excited and engaged and happy and supported is more the exception, not the norm. Uh, I think most people, I don't know what the percent is, maybe 60, 70, 80% go home at some point and complain about, you know, their boss or their, their workplace. So we saw that and then boom, 
you know, we all had COVID and then, you know, things got worse. We had alienation, we had isolation, we had anxiety, a lot of anxiety in the workplace. So we figured, Tim and I, that really in some ways, this is the vaccine to the, to the <laughs> virus, you know, the, the four C's we call it, which is really our, our definition of meaningful partnership. And the four C's are connection, cohesion, coordination, and collaboration, an elevated state of connection, cohesion, coordination, collaboration. And that, that feeling of support that my partner, whether that's my team and I'm the manager or I'm the manager and my team supports me, um, this notion of elevated support leading to those four C's. Right. So, um, you know, that's kind of why we wrote the book because the pain is there and people sort of suffer through it and don't know what to do about it. And even these well-intended managers want to be good bosses, but they don't know how because they're not asking the right question and they're not having the right conversation with their team. Yeah. And so, Dave, to get further along your question, which is what does this do? Well, we talked about that at the beginning, that that gap that I wish, I wish, I wish, where the team had these implicit expectations of their leader. The leader had these implicit expectations of the team, and these are unspoken, and they never get brought out to be made explicit. And so the process is a process of trying to get those implicit ideas out and make them explicit so that everyone, if you're a leader, this is great because you can hold your team fully accountable for the success of that your team and, and the relationship. And if you're a team, what's even better is that idea of managing up. You know now what the explicit obligations are that your leader has. They've stated them. They, they, they've made them explicit. And now you can hold your boss fully accountable for the success of way. the in team safe, and safe. the relationship in a, a, a psychologically safe way. And this is why I became a zealot. What I said earlier is it's not just a one-shot deal. I've worked with organizations before this and, you know, I've gone in and I've done the best training ever in the world. I, I'm laughing because, um, you know, I'm the most awesome and it's the best training program ever. And I remember one with a nonprofit locally where one of the participants then asked, well, what do we do with this? And I threw my hands up and said, tell your HR department to bring me in in two months and we'll check in. Um, the, the idea here is that there's this constant exchange of appreciation and feedback, positive what's going well. It's a positive experience. It's a way to make things better. And there's a routine exchange of developmental feedback in all ways. So peers get to give each other developmental feedback and appreciation. Peers get to give their boss, the team members get to give their boss, their leader, their manager, um, appreciation and developmental feedback. And the boss gets to use this. And we have, um, you know, when you start off, as Seth said, uh, with some of these times to review these covenants, the first time is a rough one-hour meeting where people are tentative and figuring this out. But our goal is what one of the stories is in the book is Roy. And we're still in touch with Roy. That's not mm -hmm. uh, the person's real name, but we're still in touch with Roy. And Roy literally does these reviews in five minutes 
at the beginning of team meetings. And it's just gotten to be routine for Roy. Uh, Roy just walks through this. And really, I mean, I, I, I think about Jim Collins's term, you know, from good to great. And really, Roy's got a team that, and, and again, I'm, I'm trying not to say his real name, yeah. um, but Roy, Roy's got a team that's gone easily, quickly in a new organization, in a, a small organization that's up and coming in the high tech industry. Moved his team from good to great very quickly with Let this. Let me covenant. build on Tim's thing. So he's he's talking about the whole thing of feedback, and in most organizations, you know, if the boss leaves you a voicemail and says, you know, hey Dave, I've got some feedback for you, come to my office, click. Okay, most of us are going to have you know racing heart, like, am I in trouble? What the heck happened? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like just the whole experience of feedback in the workplace is one where people get defensive, they get fearful, you know, depending which part of the power. And by the way, managers get anxious about giving it to direct reports and worry about conflict and not being liked and all that stuff. So it's it's a very emotionally charged experience. Uh, it's somewhat rare unless it's good feedback. Um, and that shouldn't be. Uh, you know, I, I liken it to it should be as unemotional as please pass the salt. You know, I, I joke and say if a plumber came over and you had some sort of stuck, uh, you know, pipe system or plumbing system and he notices that your sink is not quite working and offers to fix it and says, you know, I noticed this is broken. Do you mind if I take a moment and fix it? And you say, oh, that's great. Sure. It, you know, like none of us would be bent out of shape. Like, what do you mean my sink is broken? I can't believe you're comp you know, telling me my sink is in bad shape. We wouldn't have that reaction. And, and that's the way, no kidding, feedback should be in the workplace. It should be as unemotional as your plumber telling you you know, you have the wrong tap for that sink or you have a stuck toilet. Um, that's the way it should be. We should have a conversation in which the emotion is out of it and we focus on what is it I can do to help you feel supported? How can I be a better partner for you? Give it to me, give it to me straight. Let's not waste time. And, you know, then I'll give it to you straight. And, and that's this Roy situation that Tim is alluding to. In the book, we have this engineer who... Um, you know, created these covenants and did it with his team and just was able to have this unemotional, efficient exchange of feedback. I mean, that is the gold standard. Engineer type feedback, you know. <laughs> well, you know, this emerged from an engineering yeah. environment. Now, I right. will say, you know, Tim, you and I recently, uh, you know, we had a social work team up in, in Oshawa. And, and although they were very chatty about their feedback, they understood the notion of giving it to each other without all the baggage. They, uh, they grasp the notion that performance feedback and colleague and team to manager, manager to team feedback should be unemotional and given with, you know, just this intent of how do we be better partners? Yeah. And part of the process when you go into an organization and you're working with these teams, does one of you uh, serve as like the mediator for the initial uh I guess, evaluations uh, to try and set the standard of how well, they communicate? Is well, that... this is a great question because we can, uh, you know, Seth and I in the book, Seth, you can hold up that book again. In the book, we give it away. Um, <laughs> everything is in that book. And not only that, we've been training other people on how to do it. Um, but one of the people who um, read our book and, uh, uh, has been an advocate, Laura Begg. Um, she read the book and just started doing it. 
on her own. She's in training and development HR, uh, senior leader at an organization. And um, you can read the book in two ways. Uh, you know, my friend Steve that I own a boat with, Steve says, oh, yeah, it's a great book. It took me an hour to read. Great. It has a great leadership book. He, he got some ideas from it. Um, Laura, she spent a couple of days digesting it, thinking through. So we do actually give away. But our advice, now your question was, do we have to be that facilitator, that outside facilitator? Absolutely not. But our advice is it's better to have an outside facilitator to do at least the initial and maybe the first two reviews, maybe even the third, depends depending on the group. It doesn't have to be us, and it doesn't even have to be somebody outside the organization. Um, there are a lot of people with really great facilitation skills in HR and training and development and in many other areas in an organization. So um, there's lots of people who could facilitate this. Um, certainly we do, uh, as you hear. But, and we train the trainers. Uh, and, and we, we train we... the trainers on this. Uh, but but you don't need us. Um, this is something you can do with the book. We gave it away. As all good organization development people do, we we said, here's what you can do. Um, enjoy. Go, uh, go live this way and you'll build better and more successful relationships at work. You know, people pe people have joked when they uh, you know hear our our description of things, and and some uh, podcasters and others have said, "Well, gee, this kind of sounds like marriage encounter or, or marriage counseling." <laughs> um, and, and there is some concentric circle there. There is a little bit of an overlap. Uh, in the same way, you'd want a third party helping you have that you know crucial conversation with your spouse. Uh, it helps to have a third party initially create the structure and the format and guide you through the initial conversations around this. Um, you know, the, the, the difference here, perhaps, uh, I don't know, I have been to a marriage encounter, but, uh, you know, it's less judgy for sure. And and the idea is, you know, here you were creating partnership between manager and team. But yes, it helps to have a third party is kind of the quick answer to. What it makes me think of is, you know, from my background in the fire service, after mm -hmm. large incidents, we would do what, you know, some call a tailboard critique or a an after action review where it's uh you know really right after the incident where you're still on scene and everybody that was there operating gets to weigh in this is what i saw from my location this is these are the actions that i took these are the mistakes that i made if i had it to do over again this is what i would do differently and uh you know break down communication failures and everybody is expected to own their piece of the pie and be very open about it and if they if they didn't re recognize a shortcoming it's up to somebody to say you know this is something that i saw but it's not it's not punitive. It's not aggressive. I mean, that's supposed to be the setting that seems to be the most beneficial. Um, but it, it, for agencies that are first implementing this type of thing, it can go the wrong way. Um, so let, let me pose this question to you, Dave. Imagine, I, I love your AAR, the, the after action review. So imagine a, that you don't wait for a critical incident to do it and B imagine it's on a regular quarterly basis. So every quarter we take an hour and we say, how are we doing and what could we improve? That's 
similar to what this is. We're not waiting for the crisis. In fact, if anything, this is trying to avert a crisis. And we structure and we agree that every quarter, three, every three months, we're going to have that hour to 90 minute conversation around how are we doing? What could we all do better? Great. Well, in those agencies that get really good at those after action reviews after a large incident, they do them after training, after uh, EMS calls, whatever it is, it, what you're saying is exactly how they become very good at it and, yes. and create that environment where they feel safe, right. you know, yeah. expressing their, their mistakes. Yeah. yeah, it's a, it's a psychologically safe environment in this, and it's developmental. So similar to the and by the way, I have been in it in those after action reviews. Uh, we call them debriefs, but yes, yeah, same same idea. And I've been in those, and I'm I've been in some rough ones where I've been the one who has to have made sure the environment is safe when I've said what I've not done perfectly. So, um, so yes, I totally understand that. I I never actually saw. Oddly, even though I've been in both situations, I never saw that parallel, but it is, it has to be a psychologically safe environment. It has to be focused on development and improvement. The same thing as the after action review, um, because if you, if you take it and use it as punitive or some organizations do, and that that's not going to work. It's going to bomb quickly. It has to be focused on improvement, development, positivity. How do we get, make things better? You're right. Now, who will get the most out of this book? Seth, go ahead. Sure. Well, actually, we we know you know six six great times to use a workplace covenant. Um, I, I, let me back up. I think everyone should understand meaningful partnership. I, I think anyone who has an important partner, it's one of the icebreaker exercises we do. We have people think about the best partner they've ever had ever, and the worst partner they've ever had ever, and what were those individuals or groups like. And as you might imagine, the best partner ever had my back, and I trusted him or her or them. And they taught me and they coached me and they told me the truth. And the worst partner ever was a schmuck and selfish and prejudicial and uh, didn't share any information and, you know, had an ego, blah, 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 blah. So we've all had partners. And the question is, you know, where do they fall? So I think everyone understands this notion that partnership is important. And, and to the extent we have key interdependent people in our work life, we have to have a good relationship. Who will it help specifically? It helps new managers. A new manager joining a team, this helps you hit the ground running and not make stupid mistakes. Uh, instead of guessing and trial by error, um, you know, trial and error, you can establish these mutual expectations and obligations right at the get-go. So it becomes an essential thing to do in the first month or two of a new manager and team. I think it's very useful um, where there are issues of trust, uh, where there are problems. This becomes a remedial process for some groups, and I've been called in many times to do that. So it does help to take a group that's having issues within the team itself, and maybe the manager is okay, or maybe it's the manager and team relationship that's broken. Um, I think it works well, key individual to key individual. You can have a covenant between two individuals. You can have a covenant between two departments, as Tim alluded to, two teams. Um, uh, it works well sometimes after coaching, a manager goes through coaching or leadership training. This is a good, useful sort of homework item 
for a manager to go and help build or strengthen the relationship with his or they've learned all this stuff about leadership or they got 360 coaching and feedback and everything. And now they got to go and improve their relationships. But sometimes they're wondering, well, okay, I'm a better leader. I, I know more about leadership now and I know all my problems, but how do I actually go repair those relationships? And this helps a manager to do that. Am I missing one, Tim? No, I think you, you hit the key ones. Okay. Now, <clears throat> one, of, one of the things that you said about this being a really good book for new managers, I the way it sounds to me is that not only for new managers, but for aspiring leaders, I, this sounds like such a great book for somebody that wants to be a better leader that as they're developing, I mean, cause it seems like it'll, it'll help you become a better teammate as well. Oh, 100%. Tim, Tim yeah. you want to take the not leadership, not team yeah. <laughs> in the middle? Uh, yeah, um, 100%. And and Seth's uh, bringing something up that's great. This is, you know, my specialty is teamwork, team development. You know, that's what my main training is. Seth's is leadership, leader development. And both of us do work on teamwork and leadership. But um, really, we have these different subspecialties. And this is an interesting one because um, I love this idea because – a leadership development book says, Dave, as a leader, here are the five things, 10 things, 12 things, you know, people like lists. So the 12 things you need to do as a leader, and it's kind of admonishing and finger pointing. You do these, you'll be a better leader. And it's the same thing with the teams. You read the team development leadership or the team development literature and it's the same thing. It's admonishing. Here are the eight things you need to be. And by the way, I've written those articles, so I know they exist. <laughs> Tim's top 10 tips for teams is out there, <laughs> but it's, here's what you need to do. And it's admonishing. And, and this is not a leadership development book. It's not a team development book. It's about the space in between. How do we together develop how we treat one another and how do we make work better so that all of us don't go home, as Seth said, in this miserable place where we're the 60% of the people or more out there who are going home and, um, you know, having arguments at home because of the crappy work life that they've had. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, definitely. So it's actually something we say in the introduction. This is not a leadership book with, as Tim said, you know, a prescription, nor is it a teamwork book with a prescription. It's about that space in the middle and it will make you a better leader because in this process, you're going to ask your team, what do I as the manager need to do for you to help you feel supported and be successful? So if you actually listen to what they tell you and do it, you're going to be a better leader. In turn, the team is asking the manager, what can we do to be a better team? And if they actually listen and take notes and try to implement that stuff, they're going to be a more effective, cohesive, mature, self-correcting, independent, empowered team. Right. So it and, creates teamwork and it creates leadership, but that's not really. Yeah. And it's not about the things to do. It's about how to get it done. And so, so many leadership books or team development books talk about this is what you need to accomplish, but don't say how. Yeah. This doesn't say what you need to accomplish. It says, here's how you do it. 
here's the conversations you need to have. And there's, there are four stories to do it safely. Yeah. And it's not all theory. You know, Tim and I do have doctorates and, you know, we traffic a bit in theories and things. We mentioned ERTAP, but I'd say the book is is lighter on theory. It's what, 10, 15 percent theory. It's mostly practical and shared stories and shared, you know, quote unquote wisdom from our consulting work. Um, and there's four, you know, I think engaging stories of managers who had different things going on with their team, two women, two men, different industries in all four cases and different levels of expertise as leaders. And they all use this process uh, given different triggers that were going on and uh, got themselves to a high. I mean, even Roy, who started off being, you know, the gold standard, got even better. Um, oh. You know, Marie, who was having trouble, was in the penalty box and she got herself back to to normal. <laughs> One of the things that, that both of you have touched on um, that, I, I'm really, really interested to find out how you address this either personally as a consultant or through the book, because I'm sure you address it in the book. But when you are working with a team that has already a damaged relationship where the, the trust has been severed, how do you repair that? What what are the what are some of the the steps that you will take or uh, some of the the methods that you encourage to to rebuild that team? Or do you just dismantle it and start afresh? Uh, most teams, I don't think, need to be dismantled. Um, certainly, there are, again, back to what I said before, 95% or more of the time, this will work. But there are 5% of teams or leaders who are just not ready to listen, develop, improve. Uh, and so 95% of the time, this is going to work. And now when there is a damaged re damaged relationship, absolutely. It, you have to tread lightly. You have to work harder. You have to till the soil a little more first. You know, I think about if there are places in my lawn where the, the soil is really good and we can grow things quickly. There are places in my space where things just don't grow well and I have to work harder and feed it more and spend more time with that. And absolutely there are certain teams where you're going to need to spend a little pre-work developing things, but I will say it does work with teams, even when trust is broken because it creates this one safe space for teams to give feedback to their leader. All of a sudden, it's the team feedback, not me, Dave, giving you feedback and telling you all the ways you screwed up. It's it's us. Uh, and sorry, Dave, I'm, I'm not, I got to pick it on you, but uh, <laughs> you, you're the host, so I get to. Um, but uh, it, it's not a, me saying it. It's the team saying it. It's not me telling you all the ways you've screwed up. It's us saying, here's the things you're doing well, and here's a couple of things you can do better. And it does take some strong on those teams with broken trust that are damaged. I loved that word that are damaged and with broken trust. It does take a strong facilitator um, to help them walk up to the process and walk through the process. So a little extra time tilling the soil. Seth, anything to add to that? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's hitting reset. Um, you know, I would have asked in your question, did you mean broken trust between leader and team or team member to team member? Because there is somewhat of a difference. Um, I think both are repairable through this process. Which one were you thinking of when you 
I, I was thinking both actually, because okay. I've seen okay. I've seen teams that you know there was the allegiance to you know a couple of the members on the team uh, had allegiance to the leader, and then you know the team isn't doing a great job, and uh, it's because the team members aren't getting along, and they really don't like the the leader either. And so there's that there's conflict within the team, but there's also conflict between the leader and the team. Two of the stories in the book have to do with internal team conflict. The manager was actually okay and respected, but within the team, there were silos, clicks and and baggage uh, that this process helped. Uh, this process helped the group to let it go, to get over it, to move past it, um, to begin to see each other as people again. And, and to build on Tim's point, you do have to till the soil. There is team building. There's things you would do perhaps in addition to this process to, to help that happen. Um, in the case where the broken relationship is with the manager, the manager has to earn those trust deposits. I mean, you know, what I would do is coach that manager. Um, and in addition to this process, uh, help that manager understand that, you know, every word, every deed is either a deposit or a withdrawal. You're probably familiar with that, that analogy that Stephen Covey made famous. He didn't invent it, but he made it famous, you know, that it's a bank account. And, you know, your bank account is in arrears with this group, so you're going to have to work for the next six months to build it back with sincere praise and appreciation and I'm sorry and um, commitment to your covenant and, you know, other sorts of things. So I, I, I'm i not sure it's either or. It's both and. I mean, I, I think where there's really huge trust issues, there are other things, other tools and processes you can use in conjunction with this but this certainly helps. This helps and moves them forward rather than focusing on what's been in the rear view mirror. I mean, I I got this great quote from my uh, good friend, Seth, um, where there's a reason the windshield is bigger than the rear view mirror. (laughs) It's better to look forward. You need to see what's coming. Don't don't spend as much time looking backwards. Mm -hmm. So, Uh, you know, Tim talked about very few teams that, you know, there's two teams that come to mind, Tim, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. A a local SUNY school and that other SUNY school that we work with. And, you know, not that academia is always the source of dysfunction, but um, we can joke about how they, they certainly are pretty good at creating it. Um, But there, there were two teams, one long ago in my experience that is referenced briefly in the book and one that's more recent for Tim and I that came after the book. And they just couldn't handle it. They were just not mature enough. There was just a lot of stuff. You know, I I think tenure uh, is an interesting, complicating factor. Um, You know, in academia, certain professors and department chairs and such will have tenure. And and that that can work against real accountability and um, incentive to make behavior change. Um, but having said that, we have worked very effectively with many, many academic institutions. And so it's it's not necessarily at all a no-go. I think it still works well 90% of the time. Yeah. It it sounds like this this book and this process would be huge for human resources uh individuals, <laughs> you know, for larger organizations to bring it in to Amen. Help- <laughs> Hallelujah. Amen. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to drop Dave. I'm just, I'm just, yes. Yeah, it, I, I had the, the privilege of working with uh, the human resources department and the, the fire department that I worked for uh, while developing uh, a testing process, an evaluation process to bring 
young firefighters into the special operations fold um, and developing that process in a fair and equitable way. Uh, I, I employed the, the help of the human resources department and I learned a lot from them, but I also saw that uh, there was some deficiencies on their part, not really understanding the culture of uh, the fire department. Tim, you want to? Uh, I don't have, I think that's uh, makes perfect sense to me. It's uh, I mean, HR is really the HR training development, organization development units and organizations really could make use of this. I agree. And um, not only, be trained. I, I mean, Seth and I just talked about uh, earlier uh, how we were doing facilitator training, and we just trained uh, nine people up in Canada to do this, to HR training development, um, uh, DEI specialists to do this. So uh, absolutely great resource. It, it also can be what you mentioned is this idea that um, it can be unit to unit. So how can you better for HR do your job um, with your groups. Uh, you could actually use it that way. So, yeah. so I, I, a caveat though, a caveat to both what Dave just said and what Tim just said. I think it depends how HR views itself in the organization. I think there are HR departments that view themselves to some extent as at least monitors, if not custodians of the culture. And you have experienced, well-trained HR people who understand labor relations, employee relations, and uh, leadership guidance and coaching, et cetera, et cetera. You also have in some organizations, HR as sort of a paper pushing transactional, you know, we'll bring people in, we'll get them their benefits. And, you know, that's our function. And I think it does hugely depend on what kind of HR department you're working with. I, I recall having a conversation with an HR person who who I really like personally, but she she viewed HR as transactional and, and the conversation around workplace covenants and leader development was just going nowhere. Uh, by contrast, we've certainly talked with and trained with a lot of HR uh, organizations where you know they view their role as much more active and accountable um, and for them, it's a pleasure. Yeah, it's an absolute perfect fit with with an HR group. They should have these skills. They should understand this language. Uh, you know, I've, I've mentioned to HR people, senior HR people, if you ask the senior HR person, what's a performance appraisal? Gosh darn, they know that. If you ask the senior HR person, what's a performance improvement plan or, a, you know, a progressive discipline plan? They know that. What's a 360 feedback, 360 degree leadership feedback? They know it. these are standard tools, right? We hope that a workplace covenant is as standard and well understood a tool as a performance review, as a coaching and you know 360 plan. Um, we would like, if we could wave our wand, that that this would just become part of the vernacular with within a HR and organizations generally. Can you? I just want to be crystal clear on what a workplace covenant is. I mean, I, I feel like you defined it, but I, I want, well, I, I, I just want to be crystal clear on what it is and how one is established. Seth, I'll let you take this one. Um, so uh, I think we have danced around it, to be honest, Dave. I don't think we've actually defined it. So this is, uh, we've kind of talked about it, but Seth, go ahead. Yes, uh, you know, it's right. I was, I was actually looking for an example in the book because I, I, th I think we actually have one. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, you know, here here, here it is. It's, it's a bulleted list. It is a set of reciprocal obligations that a manager makes to a team and a team makes to a manager, which outline the behaviors they will provide as best as possible to help their partner feel supported and be successful. Uh, a manager's covenant to a team might include things like provide coaching and feedback, advocate for the resources this team needs, um, be considerate and empathetic to your personal lives and understand if you have to take a day off or you know, have to get your kid to a soccer game at four o'clock. Um, another manager obligation might be to provide developmental opportunities and career opportunities for advancement. It might be to um, ensure the team has uh, decision-making input. Before a decision is made, the team gets to have input and discussion. It might be the uh, manager facilitates conversations with the levels above, et cetera, et cetera. So the manager says, these are the 10 things or fewer that I commit to to help you team feel supported. In turn, the team's covenant, small c, not religious, would be we're going to work together. We're going to achieve the goals that we set. You know, we're going to do our effing jobs, right? We're going to, you know, show up on time and be professional and represent the group well internally and externally. We're going to give you early heads up on issues. We're going to have timely, prompt, honest, you know, unvarnished information so that you manager feels supported. We have your back and you're never going to be blindsided with your boss. Another covenant item the team might have is um, we're going to do peer-to-peer -peer training. We're going to make sure that we all have the necessary skills on this team to do the job in case one of us hit by a bus, you know, we can fill in. We're going to um, take advantage of career development and we're going to be responsible for our own certifications. So if it's a, a kind of a context where they have to be certified or do in-service training, you know, we're not going to have to be nagged about that. We're going to do it, et cetera, et cetera. So here are the 10 things we as a team commit to you, boss, uh, so that you feel supported and can be successful. So it's it's a set of, you know, it's it's, you know, a top 10 list, you know, somewhere between eight and 10 of actual specific behaviors that the other party needs to feel supported and be successful. And every environment will come up with it. There are common themes. As you might imagine, communication is big on every call. We're going to communicate. We're going to communicate honest and timely and, you know, whatever. As you might imagine, advocacy on most managers' covenants. You know, it is a job of a manager to advocate and to secure resources and information and pay raises and other things. So that one tends to show up a lot. Communication shows up all the time. But every environment has differences. You know, I was yeah. working with a... Uh, a pharmaceutical not long ago and you know they had regulatory and safety and other things in their covenant that you know another group might not have yeah and the the process to get there is not as simple as people spitting out their lists it it's about a two-hour process minimum uh to get to these lists and it requires a lot of dialogue and i'm using the term dialogue very carefully because it, it, it's not a critique or conversation it's that back and forth to how do we understand these lists so it starts out with um after again tilling the soil for a little while it starts out with uh the team leader putting a list of obligations to the team and expectations of the team and the team putting out a list of obligations to the leader and expectations of the leader. And then through a um, compare and contrast process, exactly what Seth's talking about and this compare and co contrast process, um, the expectations are merged into the obligations of the other list. Well, actually um, go back, so, go back a bit, go back one step. Go ahead, so, Seth. You can... Yeah. So imagine the team, the manager has said, here's what I owe you guys. Okay. Here are the eight things I owe coaching, feedback, timeliness, advocacy, uh, professional development opportunities, blah, 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 blah. And then the team says, okay, great. 
here's our expectations of you, Mr. or Ms. Manager. We expect input on decisions. We expect recognition and appreciation. We expect regular staff meetings and to be in the loop on, on key and things. We expect advocacy. So Tim's right. At that point, the expectations of the one are compared to the obligations of the other, and voila, they are merged. And that becomes a covenant, small c. Now, that's fantastic. Wish I had had something like that in my time in the department. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, for those listening that would like to learn more about the two of you or uh, connect with you on social media, uh, purchase your book, what's the best way to, to connect with the two of you? Well, the, the book's available uh, certainly through the publisher, Taylor and Francis, Rutledge, uh, Productivity Press, um, easily available on Amazon. Of course, that's the quickest way to get books today. Yeah, um, some local Barnes and Nobles have it, but not many. Uh, are, do bookstores even really exist much anymore? So, but uh, uh, um, to connect with me, um, I'm active on LinkedIn. My LinkedIn is under Franz Consulting, Tim Franz, Franz Consulting. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty active. I know Seth is too. And also I have uh, a website that is pretty low key because my day job is a college professor, but teambuildingprocess.com and resources for all four of my books are up there. So. Uh, I would echo what Tim said. Um, it is available on Amazon, probably the quickest, fastest way to get it. And I think it's for around 29 bucks right now and change. Um, I am also active on LinkedIn, uh, Seth R. Silver. I use the initial a lot just so that you don't spit when you say my name. I learned a long time ago when people say Seth Silver and then they end up spit. <laughs> so Seth R. Silver breaks it up a little bit, you know, like James T. Kirk, you know. So um, I have an email. Uh, it's Dr. Seth R. Silver at gmail.com. So the DR like Dr. Seth and then the R and then the silver at gmail.com. And I, and I saw your website is silverconsultinginc.com. Correct. Correct. And, and yeah. do both of you have uh, links to your social media on your websites as, as well? Absolutely. Mine are there. I may LinkedIn. need one. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> LinkedIn, LinkedIn and Facebook on mine. And maybe... Yeah, I think what it's a great question, Dave. No yeah. one has ever asked me that. <laughs> I've got a meeting with my web guy, a virtual meeting with my web guy in a week. Uh, your friend, Tim, uh, Ray, yeah. so I, I have to uh, raise that. I'm not sure I would. That's a really good question. Is there a link? Do you know, Tim, if there's a link from my website to the LinkedIn? I don't know. Or vice versa? It's me. It's on mine. Okay. There's All a link right. to Seth's on mine too. I can tell you that. So uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. I think you're, I think you're linked into my, on my right. website. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will tell you real quick. <laughs> oh, Dave's now, pulling then. the information <laughs> up. And, and this is where the, 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 the connections continue because it turns out Seth's web, web guy is somebody I went to high school with, which That's is just right. very, you know, all the connections that you get small over life. Rochester uh, world, small yeah. world. Um, and I used to say small Rochester until I ran into somebody at one of the um, museums in DC and I ran into somebody in New York city and, you know, um, so is it on there, Dave? 
I survey says, yeah, no, it's not anywhere yeah. that I've <laughs> seen. Uh, Ray's got some work to do. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll put it on my to-do list for my web guy. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I will have links to uh, both your websites and, and your LinkedIn pages in the Super. show notes. So um, anybody out there listening that wants to connect with them, uh, I would encourage. So most of the people that listen to the show are either working on themselves, responsible for developing other leaders. And, uh, you know, you've got military, uh, first responders, um, just, you know, corporate world executives. So I would encourage people buy this book implement. Uh, we've talked about these concepts on this show. Uh, this seems like a, a very well thought out process that uh, can can really walk anybody through it. And the, the personal development alone, I think, is worth the 29 bucks. So uh, yeah, thank, th you. thank you guys for, for coming on and, and having this conversation with me. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure. Great. Had fun. Thank you Thanks, so much. Dave. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content, and don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review.